This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Mike Davis died October 25th after a long struggle with esophageal cancer. He was 76. We were friends for a long time and co-authors of the 2020 book, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. And, of course, he was often a guest on this podcast. Mike, of course, is best known for his 1990 book about L.A., City of Quartz. Marshall Berman reviewed it for the nation. He said it combined, quote, the radical citizen who wants to grasp the totality of his city's life and the urban gorilla aching to see the whole damn thing blow. And the whole thing did blow 18 months after the book was published when the Rodney King riots broke out in L.A. in 1992. Frightened white people rushed home, locked the doors, and turned on the TV news. But Mike was driving in the opposite direction with a friend. They parked, got out, and started talking with people in the streets about what was going on. Then he went home and wrote about it. Mike was a 60s person, but he didn't come from a liberal or left background. His father was a meat cutter and a conservative. And as a young patriot, Mike briefly joined the Devil Pups. That's the Marine Corps' version of the Boy Scouts. His life was changed by the Civil Rights Movement. In 1962, when he was 16, a black activist married to his cousin took Mike to a protest organized by CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, picketing an all-white Bank of America branch in San Diego. Soon he was volunteering at the CORE office there, he started college at Reed, but left to go to work full-time for SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. As an SDS organizer in the late 60s, Mike was part of the largest mass arrest in the history of 1960s protest. This was at Valley State, now called California State University, Northridge, in 1969. There, 286 people were arrested after a peaceful sit-down of 3,000 students protesting the school banning all demonstrations, rallies, and meetings. 45 years later, he said, What I remember most vividly about the arrests was the ride to jail in a police bus. The girls started singing, Hey Jude, don't be afraid. I fell in love with all of them. City of Quartz, of course, was his masterpiece. Published in 1990, it opens with a description of a visit to the ruins of the socialist city of Llano del Rio, founded in 1914 in the desert north of L.A. There, on May Day 1990, Mike finds two 20-something building laborers from El Salvador camped out, hoping for work in nearby Palmdale. When I observed that they were settled in the ruins of a Ciudad Socialista, he wrote, one of them asked whether the rich people had come with planes and bombed them out. Then they asked what he thought of Los Angeles. Quote, I tried to explain that I had just written a book, dot, dot, dot. And then you turn the page to chapter one, the unforgettable sunshine and noir. After City of Quartz, Everybody Wanted Mike, Adam Schatz wrote in 1997 about how phoning Mike Davis is a good way of getting acquainted with his answering machine. Sitting on his porch on a warm evening, I understood why. The phone rang incessantly, and Davis never once rose from his chair. The calls lasted from morning to midnight. It might be the photographer Richard Avedon or the architect I.M. Pai with a request for one of Davis's legendary tours of L.A. It might be a Danish curator mounting an exhibit on the postmodern city, an organizer with the Hotel Workers Union, 
or a student at UCLA's Cesar Chavez Center. Mike turned down most invitations to speak. I remember his daughter, Roisin, telling him in 2014, Dad, you really should reply to that invitation from the president of Argentina. And Mike saying, if I'm not replying to the Pope, I'm not replying to her. He had been invited to the Vatican after the publication of his book, Planet of Slums. But he did accept some invitations. At UC Irvine, where we were colleagues in the history department for most of a decade, I gave a lecture in his course to cover for him the day he was away speaking at an anarchist convention in Palermo. Mike didn't like being called a prophet of doom. Yes, LA did explode two years after City of Quartz. Yes, the fires and floods did get more intense after Ecology of Fear. And of course, a global pandemic did follow his book, The Monster at Our Door. But when he wrote about climate change or viral pandemics, he was not offering a prophecy. He was reporting on the latest research. After COVID hit, we did several nation podcast segments about it. He told me at one point, I've been staying up late reading virology textbooks. He said he wrote about the things that scared him most. Ecology of Fear, a bestseller published in 1998, dealt with earthquakes, forest fires, floods, and century-long droughts. One chapter, The Case for Letting Malibu Burn, became a classic. That's where he argued it would be better to spend fire budgets protecting crowded inner-city neighborhoods than protecting mega-mansions built in remote hillside fire areas. That provoked its own firestorm. His critics, led by a Malibu realtor, couldn't refute his argument, so they went after his footnotes. And both the LA Times and the New York Times ran stories about the so-called controversy. But the controversy faded and the argument became stronger in 2018, when fires circled LA and the sky was full of smoke for weeks. LA Times columnist Gustavo Ariano wrote, quote, During fire season, I always think about the case for letting Malibu burn. Unlike the rest of the new left, Mike didn't reject the old left. His mentor in the 60s and 70s was the renegade Communist Party leader in Southern California, Dorothy Healy. Mike loved arguing with her. When Dorothy died in 2006, Mike wrote in The Nation that she represented, quote, the left's greatest generation, those tough-as-nails children of Ellis Island who built the CIO, fought Jim Crow in Manhattan and Alabama, and buried their friends in the Spanish earth. Their deaths, he said, were an inestimable, heart-wrenching loss. Now we feel the same about his. We wanted to play part of one of the podcasts Mike did with us. Here he is one week after Trump was elected in November 2016. Initially, of course, you know, we all felt that the sky fell in on us. But if you look at the election results, there's a lot less there than we might have assumed or are worried about. I mean, the great surprise of the election, at least from looking at the, you know, the final results on a county by county or state by state level, is not that it was a dramatic white working class shift to Trump, but rather it was his success in retaining the loyalty of Romney voters. And as many people may know, uh, his final vote uh, most places was about the same as Romney's, and the national total was about the same. And the key factor here 
was not so much the economic populism, but the cynical covenant that he made with religious conservatives after their hero Cruz was defeated in the primaries. So the Christian right was given a free hand to draft the party program at the platform at the convention, something of a dream platform. And then he chose one of their great popular heroes, Pence of Indiana, is his running mate. And if you read the religious right websites or statements by the key people, they make it clear that this was, this was really seen as the last stand for right to life, especially the control of the Supreme Court and a final opportunity to reverse uh, Roe versus Wade. And this may explain some of the more counterfactual results of the election, for instance, that Clinton underperformed Obama by eight points amongst uh, Latino Catholics, for example. I love that line of yours about the cargo cult of jobs uh, in the Trump campaign, jobs falling from the sky in answer to the prayers of the believers uh, on the island. Uh, How long do you think it will take Trump voters to see that Trump is not going to bring back those good manufacturing jobs? Well, there are, of course, explosive contradictions in Trump's platform, and it's difficult to see how the so-called movement conservatives or institutional Republicans are going to vote for the kind of deficit spending that would be required for a big infrastructure program or jobs program at the same time while dramatically slashing taxes for uh, the, upper, the upper tax brackets. From the data I've seen, the defection of white working class Obama voters to Trump was mainly a decisive factor in, in a lakeshore rim of counties along the southern shore of, of Lake Erie, southeasternmost county in Michigan, you know, Ohio, and in Erie, Pennsylvania. And this is an area that's experiencing right now, as people have read from various accounts in the paper, a new wave of job flight to Mexico or, or the American South. But in other places, other parts of the Rust Belt, whether we're talking about the Piedmont textile and furniture towns of the uh, Carolinas or the Anthracite Valley areas of Pennsylvania, the defections from the Democrats, of course, took place uh, a while ago, even a long time ago, going back to two, 2000 election. And I think the media, to some extent, has conflated these two phenomena, that is the defection of Obama blue-collar voters with the vote of blue-collar whites who'd already endorsed Republicans. Trump uh, had famously the highest unfavorability ratings of any candidate in history, but it seems like a lot of the people, or at least some of the people who viewed him unfavorably, nevertheless voted for him. What do you make of that? Well, the Edison exit polls show that about a fifth of his voters, and that's about 12 million people, reported an unfavorable attitude toward him, but voted nonetheless. So how this breaks down, I mean, many of these might have been religious conservatives uh, who'd supported Cruz, but were voting, in fact, for the platform and for Pence, not for Trump. But also, I think, includes, I think there were a lot of people who just, you know, wanted to see what was inside a Pandora's box. They pushed the red button, you know, in protests against Washington and elites. I think some people literally voted for chaos out of desperation or because they saw no other way to lodge a protest. Trump's policies are nowhere as near as improvised or incoherent as they're often made out to be to 
an uncanny extent, he embraced the politics that Pat Buchanan uh, has argued for for almost 40 years, in which Breitbart has become uh, the megaphone for uh, policies as close to an American fascism as he'll ever get. But the insuperable obstacles to this are that none of the institutional Republicans in Washington are going to go along with the economic nationalism part at, at, at the end of the day. It cuts directly, of course, against the interests of their corporate sponsors. You think the real revolution in American politics this year was not Trump's? No, I don't think so at all. And I think the the emergent phenomena that's most important has been the dramatic downward mobility of college graduates, including the children of new immigrants and working class families. That's the new economic distress that has found a political expression through the Sanders campaign. And there's simply no way that Trumpism is going to unite that kind of economic discontent with the concerns of older white working class voters. Mike Davis analyzing Trump's victory one week after Election Day in November 2016. Mike died Tuesday, October 25th. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>